This series of Discovering Dementia has some content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. They're doing a survey to find out your thoughts on this podcast and others. And you could win £50 worth of Amazon vouchers by taking part. All you have to do is go to podcastviews.com and answer a few short questions. It only takes a couple of minutes, so please do take a look. Podcastviews.com. Hello and welcome to Discovering Dementia. I'm Penny Bell and this podcast began after my mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. I started to research what I could do to help her and thought it might be useful to share what I discovered with you, especially if you're in a similar situation. One story seems to lead to the next. I'm not an expert, just a daughter trying to find ways to make life easier for her mum. done quite a long drive to come to the home of Peter and Teresa Berry and find out a little bit about Peter's life living with dementia. He's also a great advocate for dementia so I'm going to go and see what their story is and what's led him to do the things that he does, public speaking, charity, cycle rides, YouTube videos. So I'm just going to gather my things and we'll go and find the house. Put my keys in my bag. Such a lovely day here in Suffolk. Sun is shining. It's one of those crisp winter days. You can probably hear the birds chirruping as I walk down the path. This looks like it might be the one. Let's have a look. I'll go and knock on the door. Aha, someone's here. Hello. Hello, Penny. Nice to meet you too. Nicely on time too. Well, thank you you for having me. Thank you very much. Hello. (coughs) That's my wife. Teresa, hi. Hi. How are you? I'm not all that well, but I'll live. Oh dear, I'm sorry. We've both had a bit of a cough. Mine has gone, but she's still there. My name is Peter Berry and I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 50. And how old are you now, Peter? I'm 55. My name is Teresa Berry, I'm Peter's wife. We've been married for 26 years. It's a nice drive down here. That's, we're very lucky here to have great countryside, great cycling, great walking, and the sea is only just two miles that direction. Oh. We have we're in Suffolk now, is that we where are. you've always been? Yes, I was born in Framlingham, which is only about 11 miles away. I think most people know Framlingham as uh, being the, near the hometown of Ed Sheeran, Framlingham Castle and that sort of thing. I have four brothers, so I lived in Framlingham all of my young life up until about 30 years ago and then uh, just moved out this way where we are. So it's, uh, yeah, I haven't really moved anywhere at all. And what was life like growing up in your family? Had a wonderful childhood. Yeah, I had, had great parents I had, I suppose, you could call it a privileged childhood. Um, It was a lovely big old house, which used to be a windmill many years ago. 
and uh, my father bought it in about 1963, I think. I was born shortly after they moved there, and um, yeah, it was oh, had an, an acre of gardens. Um, my father was a great gardener. He was an outdoor person, and uh, let's say he ran a timber business that he started in 1947. What did you do for work when you grew up a bit? I left school at the age of 15 and a half and went to work for my father in the timber business, where I worked for many, many years. Um, my brothers worked there as well, and my uncles. It was a, it was a family business. And over a period of time, the funny thing is my father developed um, Alzheimer's, but he was still very fit and good with it, and he gave the business up, and I took the business over and ended up running it for about 20-ish years, 22 or 3 years, I suppose, yeah. My father lived to be 90, uh, nearly 93, I think, and he probably had Alzheimer's for getting on for 20 years. But he could talk, move, and do all the things that I can do, but just very similar to me, his memory was extremely poor. But he was a wonderful man. He had lots of wonderful sayings. And uh, right until the end of his life, he was, he was a real character. He was really well-known and well-respected. So I spent a lot of time with him. And I think probably out of all my brothers, I spent more time with my father than any of them. So you were very close. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we were indeed. Yeah, we worked together. And when I took the business over, he still liked to have an interest. So he would come up to the sawmill and he would help me and spend the day with me, um, which was a great relief to mother because she knew where he was and he was doing the things that he loved, you know. So you were able to help him live well with his... Absolutely, yeah. Which I didn't really realise that at the time, if I'm honest. It was just, he was just a, a good father and a good person to be with. Lots of people don't get on with their parents, fathers or mothers, but I got on with both of mine and that was a, it was a privilege to, to work with my father. I think we had the same sense of humour, the same mindset. And what were you like when you were younger, growing up and starting work? Yeah, I think um, I, I was very enthusiastic. I've always been a hands-on, a, a doer. I've always been somebody who wanted to do things. And um, like all boys, I suppose, at that age, leaving school and, and having access to big machinery and doing things with big trees and working in sawmills was, I suppose, a lot of boys' dreams, like driving a train, if you know what I mean. It was something that I, I was taught by my brothers and my uncles how to do the job, so... Um, so there was that in-house training, if, if that makes sense, within that family unit. And um, it couldn't have been any more perfect, really, I don't think, looking, looking back on it. So how did you meet Teresa? Well, um, this is a thing. I was married once before, um, a oh, long while ago, only for about 14 months. And me and my former wife split up, and Teresa was married to my cousin. And the same thing happened to her. So we were in the same situation and we just became friends for probably well over a year, mm. I expect, didn't we? Our marriages split up virtually at exactly the same point. Mm, that's right, yeah. 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 And, and we, um, we, were, we got together as friends. We walked. We were both ever so upset and we just walked. We had no money, so we bought fish and chips that's and right, just went yeah. for walks, didn't that's we? That's right, And yes. it was like that for a long, long time. Never thought we'd actually end up together. <laughs> no, and we've been married, what, 26? 26 years. 26 years, yeah. yeah. What was your sort of early married life like? You were working 
with the timber and yeah we had um i think we had a good quality of life we didn't really want for anything no, we had we, um, we did have a good quality of new life new cars and things didn't we we had a child uh... quite early on cuz we were 30 probably when we married hmm. so we didn't have that much time together really before our daughter Kate came along loved having her had had a lot of holidays Mm. You know, always took her to centre parks. As she got older, we started going abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the early years, up well, up until Peter's diagnosis, I think we had a good quality of life and a lot of fun and no worries, really, did we? No. So how did your diagnosis come about, Peter? I think it was a very slow process, as all these things are. I think Teresa saw many changes in me at that time that probably I didn't. Because the thing is, when you have a condition like this, you might forget the things that you do wrong or the the troubles that you've caused, but yet the people around you see them. Me personally, I was was pretty much okay. I didn't think anything was wrong and I I was all right. Um, Put that down to being a a stubborn male or put that down to being bullheaded or whatever, I don't know. But it was, I suppose... I just thought I got a lot going on, but Teresa will probably fill you in more on the details. Mm. What kind of changes were you noticing? I noticed that he was very frustrated at doing the tasks he always used to do, because in that room there we've got some fish tanks. Our daughter's crazy about fish, and she often used to ask Peter to help in little ways because she's quite short and the tank's quite big. And um, could he help with the filters and um, just the things he'd always done. But he was getting frustrated because I think he was forgetting how to do it. And I noticed this difference in him, um, very short-tempered. So that was one thing. But the other thing was, when I went in the office, there was post-it notes absolutely everywhere. So he'd clearly forgotten so many things he'd written it here. I mean, there was just literally 50 of them stuck all over the place. I used to have a very good memory at work. People would come up to the sawmill and they would discuss an order or a project that they wanted to do. And it might be six months later, they would come back up into the sawmill and they would say, um, oh, I don't suppose you remember me, but I came and I would say, yes, I remember you wanted to build a pergler and I suggested larch, uh, four befores, eight breaks, or whatever they were. They were always impressed that I could remember these things. Um, And I used to make odd notes on occasions, but it was never very detailed. I could always remember projects and things. We had a sawmill so that we used to have a a cutting list and to, to process the timber, various measurements. I could look at the cutting list, I could know what it was, and I could do it from memory. It then got so that I would look at the cutting list and I couldn't remember what was on it when I used to walk over to where the timber is being processed. And I used to think, right, okay, so why am I forgetting this? But then me being me, I then put a big blackboard on a post that was near the saw so that I could see what I wanted to cut on my right-hand shoulder, then go to the saw on my left and do it. But as time went on, I would look at it and by the time I'd moved my eyes away to look at the saw, I'd forgotten what it was. So then, if you can imagine the round log of timber on the saw, 
me being me, I come up with another idea. So I wrote the measurements on the end of the log so that I could see them as I was cutting them. So all of these strategies I was using, which I think <coughs> delayed the process of somebody saying, you've got a problem. I also lost the ability to do calculations. Financial issues, I made many financial errors within the business. And, and, and as a result, the business financially failed due to to my mismanagement at, at that time. I'd run it successfully for over 20 years. And then all of a sudden, it, it just tumbled down in a very short space of time. All because... A, I didn't pick it up myself quick enough, and, and B, I covered my tracks so that others wouldn't. And I think this is a key thing that, for argument's sake, if, if, if you're a solicitor or somebody who has got people around you who do appointments and look after all of your uh, diaries and everything like that, uh, something like dementia won't be picked up until quite late on because everybody else is running around picking up the bits that you're missing and I think that's a key issue um, if you fail to do an appointment somebody rearranges another one or if you don't do this somebody changes it and and I was sort of finding strategies but um, at the end of the day I couldn't find enough of them. The real eye-opener for me was one day when we Peter was driving and we got a phone call from our daughter to say could you come and pick me up? And she was in Claydon. And we knew I could picture the route in my mind, as you do when you're driving. And I knew, I just knew that Peter couldn't. And he went all round Ipswich. And, and I said, what are you going this way for? And, and I just, because I'm his wife and because I know him well, I knew that he couldn't fathom out how to get there. So for me, that was the turning point when I knew that we needed to go and see a doctor. So it's more because of how long we'd been together and how well I knew him that I noticed these very subtle signs, really. How long do you think you noticed them for? Not very long before I jumped on it. A few months, I would say, of putting it down to, oh, he's stressed... You know, as you do, but you can't keep saying that. There comes a point, my daughter had noticed as well, um, and we'd had a chat, and that's when I said to Peter, you know, I think something's not quite right, I think you should go and see a doctor. How did that conversation go? It went well, actually, because he said that, well, I don't think they'll find anything wrong, but yes, I'll go. So that was that was the start of three years of a long process of trying to get a diagnosis, which was hell on earth, really. In the beginning, because of his age, only about 47 at the time that we went, the usual things were said, it's stress, it's depression. And I'm sitting there saying, but he's not depressed, he hasn't been depressed. But even though we did become depressed after that, mm. but um, at the time, to me, they were talking rubbish. So it did take a long time and we went to several memory clinics where Peter does all these tests and the results came back as poor but they still didn't think they were poor enough and I was pushing and pushing and saying, look, I live with him, I know that something is not right. So I really did feel that I had to, to get very insistent that it was taken further, that we had more um, appointments. So it was just a long 
process where you know I was getting very frustrated I'd worked it out for myself in the end because it took so long about two and a half years in I knew what it was I don't think that journey is unusual in my age group I think a lot of people struggle to get a diagnosis because even in the professional world of medicine people's perception of dementia is different to the reality if if, if that makes sense it, it's still about elderly people it's not about young it's changing now over the last few years but there was a time where if you were a certain age group well you know what you didn't have um, any form of dementia you were just under different pressures in the end we were actually poached by a doctor we weren't in her area at all but she'd come across Peter's tests and scans and she invited us to go to her clinic and that's where we went and she sat me down and she asked me what I thought it was and I said, I think he's got Alzheimer's and she actually said, yes, I think you're right. So it was, you know, a difficult journey. I wouldn't, it's, it's a horrible journey anyway but it was made worse by such a, a long time and the fight that I had to put in to you know insist that something was wrong and that they keep pursuing it it was one thing about um, people like me raising awareness and changing people's perception means that certain organizations have now um, given out fact sheets to doctor surgeries and other professionals detailing about early onset Alzheimer's so one positive thing about all of this is that things have changed as a result of people like me and many others who, who are shouting from the rooftops about this condition and about, you know, the, the difference. It's not just old people at the end of the day. So once you found out the diagnosis, did you tell people? No. Um, in actual fact, we didn't. Um, we kept very, very quiet for about a year. Mm. Yeah. Uh, never told a soul. Only, well, our, only our daughter. Yeah, and my <coughs> mum, and I told one of my best friends. And I think, looking back on it, it was a very foolish thing to do at that time. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And I think the, the reason why was because we were trying to get our heads around it. You see, a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's is not my diagnosis. It's a whole family's diagnosis. So we were really trying to get our heads around it and what the future held for us. One of the key problems is that people like me, at this age group, or that age group then, have financial commitments. In some cases, children, mortgages, and other bills to pay. And then all of a sudden, your income is is slashed because of your ability to do what you have been able to do, or what you can safely do. And others... I suppose, others' view on that. So it was very difficult because we had a mortgage that we had to finish. Our mortgage provider wouldn't help us with that because I'd got a terminal condition. We'd paid into an insurance for a a terminal condition in case anything ever happened to me, but that didn't cover us because it wasn't marked as a terminal condition. So... We were between a bit of a rock and a hard place and, and I had to work in an industry that is deemed unsafe for somebody with dementia in order to earn enough living uh, money so that I didn't lose this house. 
That was the reality. So um, that was one key issue. The other thing is also, I was embarrassed about it, funnily enough. Um, I was embarrassed to say that I had dementia, um, which again, looking back on it, I'd advise anybody not to be embarrassed about it. That was a very, very poor thing to do, a very silly thing to do. And also I got very depressed about it. And I think we all did mm. as, as, as a family. That depression rippled out to, to everybody. And we were pretty much out there on the end of the pier fishing on our own. We didn't feel as though we had any, any help from organisations. Most of the help was tailored to an older generation, 65 plus-ish. And uh, yeah, and you've, you've got this, this, this diagnosis, you've got this, this hell that you're going through, plus you've got the problem of trying to access this, trying to access that. Um, and, and you run out of steam very, very quickly. And it's, it's a very bad place to be. And I know that many people have and probably still are going through that, that scenario. What was the lowest point for you? Oh, um, oh wow, I think the lowest point was... Um, well, I actually, I actually tried to take my own life at one time because that was, that was the lowest point. I mean, you can't get much lower than that, really, can you? And that, uh, yeah, that was, that was a, a run place to be. And I think it was then that I realised that nobody was helping me and nobody was helping us. Mm. So that all of a sudden gave me a purpose, a sense of... You know what? I'm in this place. We're in this place. Why? We shouldn't be. This is wrong. And that's not just us. There's thousands of others out there. Right. I know what it's like to be here. Nobody can say I don't because I'm here now. Let's help others. Let's inspire others to, to live well with this condition. And I didn't want people to go through what I and we as a family had gone through. I wanted to show people that you can live with this condition. A diagnosis of dementia doesn't mean the end of your life. Let's, let's move forward. And that was the inspiration that then moved us to do public speaking and do the challenges and do all the things that we could to hopefully just, if we changed one person's life, one person could say, well, that guy did it, um, that family did it, you know what, so can we. So that was, that was really the lowest point and in actual fact, sometimes you have to go to the, the depth of despair to actually come back up. So that's, in a funny sort of way, it was a very bad place to be at the time, but in a funny sort of way, it was, it was the kick up the backside that I needed in order to get me going again, I think, really. So what was the first thing you did? Well, I think, oh dear, I can't really remember now. I just think you, you used to write things <coughs> down in a book. Didn't you? Oh yes, that's right. I did. I used to write things in a journal, and I got so I couldn't write very well anymore, could I? No. And my daughter came here one day, and she said, "What are you doing, Dad?" And I said, "Well, I'm trying to write things down for people to read." And uh, she then came up with the idea. She said, "Well, why don't you do a video?" And I thought, "Well, I never really thought of that." And I thought, "Well, how is this going to work?" Then so she sort of shoot me, didn't mm. she? Shoot me how to do it, and it was Kate who set up the YouTube channel. And she said, put them on YouTube, Dad. Oh, okay. And we thought we'd do about four videos, maybe six. How many did I do I every week? I think it was 103. 103, That you did yeah. weekly. Yeah, did them every Friday. Yeah. They went up at half past seven in the morning, I think. And they went all around the world. Just a few minutes of, of coping, the good days, the bad days. This is what we do and this is what we don't do. Don't do what we did. Do this and... 
just information stuff. I do them now once a month because um, once a week started to get too much after a couple of years. And, and they're still being watched now, aren't mm. they? All over the place. Yeah, it's amazing, really. Did the speaking come from that? Because you've, you've done a little bit of public speaking as well. Yeah, um, I've done quite a bit of public speaking, actually. No, it, was, it didn't really come from that. It was just I had something to say and I just wanted to get up and say it. Nothing was rehearsed, as it probably isn't now, but I'm not quite as... I have to have prompts now, don't I? But yeah. um, I just used to go to somewhere and, and talk to five, six hundred people, two hundred mm. people or whatever, and just rock up and, and talk for three quarters of an hour and then do a question and answer. Now, as time's gone on, a good friend of ours has, has put together sort of like a, a picture... Yeah, a slideshow, slideshow type um, presentation. To, to help me know, because things mm. have changed, which they will do. And again, I've got a problem where I can't talk in public as I did. I lose a thread. So we got a problem. We create another solution. And that's what it's all about. So you've taken on some cycling challenges. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's when my first cycling challenge was born. Um, probably at my lowest point, actually. I decided to raise awareness and to raise money for Young Dementia UK at the time that I would cycle across the country. So it was from A to A. So from Aberystwyth back to Peter can't say that very well. <laughs> and it was, it was right across the country, but we were going to follow the national cycle routes. It was 360-something miles, I think it was. And I had somebody who was going to do it with me, and, um, but the very last minute, they pulled out. And uh, so I thought, now what am I going to do? So I thought, well, I'm going to do it on my own. I, I, I just have to because I'm not going to let everybody down. This this whole thing had been built around a man with dementia is going to cycle across the country. So how could I then pull out? And a wonderful lady, uh, Jan, Jan Jan Dodd, mm-hmm. her husband has early onset Alzheimer's and she lives in Kent. Again, yeah, we put she? out a plea and along come Jan. She rang me up she said, I'll do it with you. So that was the first challenge. We cycled across the country, just me and her. And to give you a little bit of an insight... She sort of navigated to a point, but I was pretty clued in with where we were going, what we were doing, who was donating, and where we were at with it. The following year, which would be last year, mm-hmm. um, I decided to cycle five counties of Great Britain on a penny farthing, just to raise the bar a little bit. And I did it with Debs, my new cycling buddy now, and... Uh, a chap from school, Mark Green, mm-hmm. and another gentleman, Mike. Michael, mm-hmm. that's right. And uh, I'd, I'd noticed that within that year of, of planning the first one to doing this one, I didn't really know where we were going as such, and I knew the counties within a little, but I didn't really know where the stops were. In actual fact, it was me just going on a bike ride following everybody else. So it was, it was a completely different, different thing. But to do it on a penny farthing, because I couldn't remember the details so much, I could still up the bar a little bit and, shall we say, raise the heights of dementia by actually doing it on a penny farthing. So that's, that's what I did. Where are you at with things now? How does it affect you today? It's strange, really, to a degree, because there's two things about this. is Having a condition like Alzheimer's or being aware of the condition... And I, I think being aware is worse than having. Um, I'm at that stage where I notice things myself. So it's a funny thing to say, but you can remember that you're forgetting, if that makes sense. 
Um, I know my short-term memory is worse, isn't mm. it? And I know that I I forget things, and I know that I struggle with things. I I, I forget to eat and drink. Um, I I I can't read and write very well. But I just focus on the things that I can do. So it's not about the I can't do's, it's about the I can do's. I can still cycle. So that's what I do most of. And I'm a great believer in if I keep the bit from my eyebrows down healthy, that must help the bit from my eyebrows up somehow. Um, we eat well, Teresa does all the things she can, but it, 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 it will affect me more as time goes on, but hopefully we can stave it off by keeping active and, and doing all sorts of... If someone says to me now... Um, you know, do you want to do you want to swim ten lengths of a pool? I say yes. I can't really swim, but I'll give it a go because I'm just like that now. I'm, and I'm constantly thinking of poor you, another challenge this year yeah. because I've got to keep doing something. So I notice obviously loads of things, and and some days it it nearly breaks me, and they're little things, they're tiny little things like. He, um, Peter can get the marmite out of the cupboard and he's got it in his hand but he doesn't really actually know what to do with it and and that's the little things like that that inside I'm I'm dying but to Peter I say oh you need to make some toast <laughs> um, and that I mean yesterday he put toast in the toaster and then didn't know how to work the toaster and said oh it's a new one isn't it and we know we probably had it about 10 years so there's loads and loads of little things. Sometimes Peter knows he has to eat, but he's got no idea what he wants to eat because he's not aware of what he likes anymore. So I have to prompt him, oh, you know, do you fancy a scrambled egg? And, and if I suggest, oh, yes, lovely, yeah, I'll have that. And he's very often capable of, of doing it, but um, he just needs that prompt to do it. Hmm. So... You know, I spend a lot of time prompting him, which means I worry when I'm not around him, when I'm at work and I'm away, and especially <coughs> if I know he's having a bad day, because he has days where he's worse than others, and I can see that the cloud of dementia is there, and he's a bit more confused, and and that when I have to leave him on days like that, it's quite difficult to do that. But you know, this is where support in the local community is is far greater than people realise. People think that you have to go to big organisations for support. Yes, they do support, and yes, you can go to them, but very often support can be closer to home, can be the local shops. Um, like we've got um, Debs, for our sake. No, she's not support, because in actual fact, she's a great friend. I don't see her as a carer or a support or anything. Um, if if we cycle together, it's great because if she gets a punch up, the man with dementia fixes it because she can't. Um, yet, so we complement each other. Because mm. she reminds you to eat and exactly drink. Exactly that, and that's, so it's that's, a win-win. That's a great thing for you, isn't it? Because yeah. Teresa knows mm. that somebody is here. So if we're out all day cycling, we might leave here at half past eight, nine o'clock in the morning. Don't get back until three in the afternoon. Um, Fifty, sixty odd miles. We'll stop and have something to eat and we drink and she's, she's prompted me to do all that. Plus we're chatting away. But it's that, at this stage in my condition, it's that companionship. And what's the challenge this year? We're trying to raise money now for Alzheimer's Research UK. That's what we've been cycling for this winter. Because I think research is such an important thing now. Support is important. But research is so important. I, I long for the day when someone says, 
Okay, you have early onset Alzheimer's, but take this pill, and you know what? It'll be fine. And that's why I want it to be now. So that's why we're raising money for, for research now. I think that I've got this wonderful positive attitude to this condition, and I don't want to dampen that attitude, and I don't want to dampen that positivity. So I try not to look on the dark side of things. Um, I try to look like my father always did. He, he always looked on the bright side of everything. And, um, and that was one of his, one of the great things that he did, and I, I try very much to do that. But I think Teresa and probably many millions of other people who are in the same situation do nothing but dwell on the future because it's, it's, a, different, it's a different ball game for them. That's exactly what I do do. My <laughs> glass has always been half empty and Peter's has always been half full. It has, yeah. So I always say it's my job to worry and I'm very good at it, but I never work out what the answers are to the future because I don't know what financially we'll live on because we're both quite young. We won't be drawing a pension for quite a few years as yet. That's something that concerns me a great deal does keep me awake at night I do overthink but I never reach any conclusions it just goes round and round and round and then I have days where I put it on hold and then it comes back again it's never very far away once you're diagnosed you go out of the hospital with nothing and and you probably get another appointment in a year's time but you're you're not monitored you're not checked anymore and that's where Teresa got me on um, a trial in the early days of being diagnosed, which gives you regular checkups and also gave you hope, didn't it? It gave me hope that I desperately needed, I absolutely mm. did. So research is a good thing, and, <clears throat> but it all helps to find a cure, but also it gives you the idea that you're actually doing some good, mm. but you feel as though you're doing something positive straight away, the, and that's the, important for you. The right? lady who we used to see regularly for you, she used to talk to me separately to you, Yeah. and she said, I wish I could bottle Peter's positivity and sell it. <laughs> she said, I would be a multi-millionaire, and that's what she used to say to me. There we are, that's our, that's our new project, <laughs> Yes, come and buy a bottle of Peterberry Positivity. <laughs> yes, £5.50 plus that. <laughs> You've been listening to Discovering Dementia. Thanks so much to Peter and Teresa Berry for talking to me. If you want to find out more about Peter and follow his challenges, you can find him on his Facebook page, Peter Berry Living with Alzheimer's and there's a link there to his website. For YouTube just search Peter Berry and Alzheimer's and you'll find him. He's posted there about how he's coping with lockdown during the current coronavirus outbreak and you won't be surprised to hear he's still managed to go out for a cycle ride. Peter and his cycling buddy Debs are also hoping to publish a book very soon about Peter's life and I'll keep you posted on when that happens. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast and don't forget to complete the survey at podcastviews.com. Discovering Dementia was produced and presented by Penny Bell with original music by Leila Matwali.